Welcome. You're listening to another episode of AML Conversations, where we sit down with some of the brightest minds in the financial industry to explore topical matters around financial crime and compliance. We hope you enjoy this discussion and please be sure to subscribe for more. How are you doing today, Mark? Hey, John. I'm good. How are you? Good. Hey, thanks for uh, taking some time with me. Um, I'm here with Mark Friedman, who's the CEO and founder of Rebel uh, Global Security. And um, Mark, uh, typically when I talk to folks like yourself that have gone from the public sector to the private sector, it's always interesting um, what they've learned. And I know you've been in the private sector for a bit, but what they've learned in terms of the challenges, like um, I can tell you that some of some of the, our peers and say the FBI, for example, when they go into the private sector, they realized how much of like banking activity they didn't really understand and it could happen vice versa if you go into the government. So I'm always interested in folks like yourself who had a long distinguished career at the State Department and worked with a lot of agencies. When you move to the private sector, give, give us a sense of uh, the differences there, high level, like what, what you saw that you knew that these were challenges, but perhaps different ones than the ones you worked on in the public sector. Yeah, sure. Well, thanks, John. And, and first of all, thanks again for having me on. Great to be here. Um, so, you know, in, when I was in the public sector, as you mentioned, I was at the State Department um, and uh, I worked on international security issues. Uh, I was in the Political Military Affairs Bureau and then in the Counterterrorism Bureau. Um, and, you know, I, I worked there really kind of through for, through the 2010s and saw a lot of the, um, the evolution there. I was focused on counterterrorism policy. And so, you know, the evolution from kind of Al Qaeda to ISIS, um, right. everything that happened in Syria and Libya and the Arab Spring. And, you know, the, um, and then, you know, kind of on the tail end, and as I moved into the private sector, um, it, on the tail end of the 2020, 2010s and into the early 2020s, um, you know, I saw this transition from uh, the war on terror, as, as you know, it was called, um, which really was the dominating force in U.S. foreign policy and national security policy for, for 20 years, right. um, and toward uh, what, you know, is now alternatively called great power competition or interstate strategic competition with kind of the, the rise once again of, of Russia and, and China as, as state concerns. And, you know, so I, I, I give that little bit of background um, because, um, you know, there, there are certainly differences between the ways that the public sector and the private sector think about security challenges. And I'm, you know, we can get into some of that discussion, yeah. but increasingly, you know, what's remarkable to me is, is how, much the challenges and the threats are shared. Um, the, you know, when I was working on counterterrorism policy, the government always talked a lot about, um, you know, how the private sector needs to do more, right? Uh, it's, it's, that is not a new statement. Private sector needs to do more to shore up its defenses, um, to protect itself. Um, you know, but I think that that has evolved uh, very rapidly from something that is um, said and is a talking point to something that is taken extremely seriously, um, given just the extent of the vulnerability, uh, particularly in U.S. critical infrastructure. 
um, which is, as you know, is, you know, 85% of critical infrastructure is owned and operated by the private sector. And right. so, um, you know, to, there, there, there are differences in how, how people look at it. You know, the, the government is focused on all security all the time in a way, and private sector security is, uh, you know, one thing uh, among many other things uh, that's usually, you know, is viewed as a cost center, um, it's it, it, it's often kind of overlooked or or dealt with as as necessary to comply with regulations. So it's not you know it's not the kind of dominating factor that it is in the government. But the challenges um, nowadays I think are remarkably similar. I mean the the government is very concerned about catastrophic cyber attacks against private companies. And you know I just just in a few minutes before I, I jumped on with you, you know I saw a report that just came out that said you know that that assessment is matched in, in by executives and boardrooms right the top right. risk that they're concerned about right now is catastrophic cyber attacks yeah you know that that makes a lot of sense and obviously uh coming from the financial industry like i have you know decades ago we decided that the private sector had an obligation to to be proactive so i i always sort of got my back up when we would hear our public sector friends say, hey, we need to do more because the, the counter argument would always be, well, you got to give us some information so we can be better equipped to do that due diligence. But in the cyberspace and some of the other things that you've worked on, um, as you just said, a lot of the information, the protection of the infrastructure is in the private sector. So it sort of flips that on its head, right? So it's more, and you tell me if I'm wrong, but more high level that it's the private sector sort of filling in the gaps that the public sector might have. And like you say, working together now seems to be a lot easier uh, to accomplish than perhaps when you started in this space or certainly when I started decades ago. Yeah, no, I, I think you're right on, right? And we need to, in the private sector, be acknowledging and recognizing that paradigm shift. Um, you know, again, I, I look at this in broad strokes, right? So you're looking at Counterterrorism um, being the, the the driving force for the U.S. government for so long, and uh, you know the things that I worked on, most of the stuff that you do for counterterrorism is handled by the government. I mean, private sector, you know, that there there is, as you know, in the financial space in particular, there is stuff that falls on the private sector, when it, especially in the AML CFT space, but. Um, most of the private sector, you know, you, you secure your assets in the same way that you would typically secure your assets. And the chances that, you know, you get hit by Al Qaeda or ISIS, uh, you know, in a, in a, with, a, with a car bombing or suicide, but, you know, it, it, is, it, it happens. But the chances that it happens to your organization is relatively remote. And um, the government provides most of the tools that are necessary to stop the threat, whether that's, you know, like at the State Department, I, I, I led the piece of it that, you know, focus on engaging foreign governments. Um, but, you know, watch listing and law enforcement and prosecutions, and then there's the military angle, obviously, you know, those are all government functions. When you talk about cyber, um, and it's not just cyber, by the way, we'll get into kind of, you know, what goes beyond cyber. But right, um, right. when you when you talk about cyber and the vulnerabilities uh, that can be exploited nowadays, um, that barrier that the United States government was able to form on terrorism issues um, is not there. Right. I mean, the, the government can do pieces here and there. 
um, to protect companies from cyber threats. You can try to equip them with information. You can give them guidance on what to do, you know, um, what patches need to be made, that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, um, that responsibility lays with the private sector company. And, um, and from a private sector company standpoint, you know, yeah, you're saying, look, I have limited resources. I'm a business. I'm not a security organization. Um, and so I can only do so much. Now, where I think that that line of logic kind of meets its end is, you know, what we've seen over the last couple of years is that, you know, you have a major cyber breach. And right. especially if a foreign government or a major um, foreign criminal organization is involved, or if it impacts critical infrastructure, um, you know, your name is in the headlines, right? It's on the front page of the New York Times. And that can be a company killer. I mean, that's, you know, that can be game over. Um, your stock price may never recover. Um, so, so the, the companies, uh, they, they have an interest now more than they ever have in, in taking a, a, a broader and more holistic view of security issues. Yeah, the, um, you wrote an op-ed piece that, uh, in um, uh, the uh, Security Info Watch that, that I was very interested in because you make, you make the comment, uh, you amplify the comment that you just made, right? That uh, the private sector should be making strategic changes to their, to their infrastructure on on broadly based national security issues, so you not call out in a negative sense, but you make the case that security officers and uh, um, chief information security officers, you know, while some of that's already happening, they are working with, as you say, their public sector counterparts. Um, there could be more done. So, in that, with that as the premise, besides cyber attacks, what are some of the other global challenges? You you know, you obviously mentioned the geopolitical world that you were part of. I, I would argue that cor uh, corruption is a major driver internationally of all sorts of problems, right? So from your perspective, being in this space and now being in the private sector, uh, what are the types of issues that you want to see these CEOs and CISOs uh, work with their counterparts in the government beyond cyber? I realize cyber is sort of the connecting point of all these crimes and issues, but just in general, what What's, what's your view on all of that? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think that there's a little bit of a perspective shift that's necessary. Um, you know, you've got, um, let, let me lay it out like this. I'm a, I'm a kind of management consultant. And, and so I, I, I like to simplify things into easily understandable frameworks, right? And I think as we look into the global threat environment, it's so complex that we need to do some simplification on what we're talking about. So you've got your global threat actors, right? Which is the, the individuals or the entities or countries or organizations that could do you harm. And um, from the US government's perspective, or at least the DOD's perspective, they're really concerned about um, a top four there, which is um, Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea. Those are your state actors. And then you've got your non-state actors, which is essentially terrorists and criminal organizations, particularly cyber criminals and ransomware gangs. So that's kind of on the actor piece. Then you've mm -hmm. got your vectors and, um, you know, vectors being how are those actors going to potentially attack your organization? Um, and I view cyber as one of those vectors. And I think that's in line with how 
most of the U.S. government and national security community think about it. You know, cyber is one piece of a broader whole. There's also physical attacks. There's espionage. There's um, increasingly, you know, as, as you know, John, a lot of talk about mis and disinformation. Right. Um, and so, you know, information uh, or, you know, has become a, a threat vector in itself. Um, and so, you know, I think that security executives um, in private companies need to take a step back and look at that whole environment. Um, so many of the solutions in the private sector are, um, in my mind, tactically focused. You know, you've got a physical security solution, you've got a cybersecurity solution, you've got, uh, you know, endpoint protection, you've got a travel risk program. Well, let's take a step back and view the organization as a whole, right? And um, what is what does the global threat environment look like? Where is the organization's position within that environment? Um, and what are the multitude of threats and how they could get in? And um, you know, it again, you know, my uh, CT person, you know, by background, and so my mind goes to pre nine eleven, and you know, the 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 idea of Al-Qaeda was able to slip through the cracks of mm -hmm. a lack of interagency coordination, particularly between the FBI and the CIA. Um, and I think it's, a, it's an analogous situation in private sector companies today. You've often got a physical security department that's in a completely different command chain from the cybersecurity department. Um, what are they doing to talk to each other um, and to maintain a broader picture of the global threat environment so that something doesn't slip through the cracks? Yeah, the 9-11 Commission report made it clear uh, in a very easy to understand phrase, the lack of imagination. So I think that does apply to both the private and public sector. Let me ask you about the private sector in this way. You've already made some good, um, provided some insight in terms of why an individual institution should think about being more proactive because of the impact on that institution. But the example that um, i point to is about a decade ago, uh, the broader AML community, mainly the financial sector, um, recognized from the, sort of from the bottom up, right, from staff within financial institutions that uh, human trafficking was both a horrific crime, but it impacted all communities. So it wasn't just big cities, it wasn't border town, it was everywhere. And that there was a financial component to that that if the financial sector was better at identifying that, they could uh, help their law enforcement partners investigate, prosecute, detect, and, and not, never, unfortunately, going to stop it, but to, to put a big hole in it. And so that was an interesting example where the bank individually doesn't always think, oh, okay, if I spend this money to do this sort of proactive investigating, that'll be beneficial to the community. I'm not saying that banks don't care about the community because they do, but I think this was an example of, we have to think beyond our region, beyond our institution. And, and I think to some degree it's been successful. So long when saying, how do you make the same case to CEOs and chief risk officers in financial institutions or any other institution, frankly, that, um, if you do more strategically about national security issues, it may not impact your individual entity immediately or may be sort of collateral impact, but there's a value proposition for 
the country, the community, the the world. I know it sounds a little, uh, you know, over the top, but I, I would think getting in front of a, a CEO and a, a CRO and saying, here's why you need to amend and change your strategy, because at the end of the day, it's going to help not just your institution, but your, you know, other things that are relevant, supply chains, what have you. Is, is there a, but not an easy way of doing that, but is, is what's your thought process about people that bring you in, they want to think about a strategic change, but they're really worried about the bottom line. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I think that's right. There are two pieces to this. Um, and the, the first is on the bottom line. I mean, and that's where everything needs to be focused. And at the end of the day, you're talking about private sector companies. They're there to make money. They're not necessarily there. You know, I mean, it, it can be a secondary or tertiary goal to, to you know, support national security or help the community, but that is typically not why they exist. And so it makes sense that executives are focused on the bottom line. They should be focused on the bottom line. Uh, you know, I, I think that on that piece of it, it's about helping executives understand that an awareness of these issues and what's going on in the world, um, the threats that are mounting, um, which are just, you know, this is just starting, by the way. I mean, you know, the, what, what we're seeing with Russia and Ukraine and the tensions with China. I mean, this is the beginning of uh, multi-year, multi-decade, uh, you know, global conflict, I think, that's, that's starting here. So, um, but, you know, you got to be aware of those things in order to protect the bottom line. Because if, if you're not aware of them, if you don't make the, and these are easy organizational changes that I'm talking about, you know, closing the gaps and how you think about security within your organization, um, something could happen. And it's, if it's big enough, there is no bottom line anymore. It's done. You know, the company is, it's, it, as I mentioned, it's a company killer. But I think on your second point, you know, there is, there is also, I think, a growing conversation around um, uh, you know, it used to be called corporate social responsibility, you know, right, the, right, yeah. the name has kind of changed over the years. Um, and, um, and, and I think in executives, um, look, it's a, it's a hot topic, right? It's a, it's a controversial issue in, in a lot of ways, but, um, some executives, I think, believe that, um, you want to do more on those things. You want to lean, lean forward and, um, in doing positive things for your community or working proactively um, with, the, with the government to support um, the national interest. You know, you've seen this, for example, from some of the tech giants, right, who have made it uh, very clear in recent years that they wanna work with the Defense Department. Now, part of that, again, goes back to the bottom line. They want the government contract. Um, but part of it is also, I, I think, a, a, a good approach to demonstrating that uh, the major American tech companies should have a level of patriotism and should support the United States um, mm -hmm. when it comes to conflict with China and other adversarial powers. So, um, so I think there's multiple tracks here to, to what you, you've raised, John, and executives need to be thinking at each of those levels. Yeah, it's probably similar to ESG, right? Environmental, yeah. social, and governance. So it's, yeah, I think, I think that's right. And I think, you know, whether it was the reaction to the uh, George Floyd murders, whether it was reaction to, you know, other, other, uh, you know, challenges in our country, I think a number of corporations did step up. Uh, obviously, the uh, unfortunate counter to that was some of the misinformation, which we don't have really time to get into now. But I do think that that's, that's right. And I think the more that we make people aware, and, you know, talking to people like yourself helps us do that, the more corporations sit up like they did with human trafficking and say, you know, we, we can do more here. 
and and it will be beneficial broadly speaking even if it's not financially beneficial so um let let me do this Uh, let me get you out of here on this given all that you're working on and all you've been involved in looking ahead five years um you know uh, hopefully we can't look ahead five years given all the challenges (laughs) (laughs) that we face right now i'd also would love to get your your take on uh, classification of documents, but we won't talk about that today either. <laughs> but, um, but give us um, your sense of where you see the challenges, both globally and domestically, in the next five years that corporations, big or small, can have an impact on by being more strategic and more proactive. Yeah, well, that's a great question. I mean, as I started to, to get at a second ago, um, I think it's really important for corporations to understand that we're not just going through a choppy year here in terms of this global turbulence. Um, You know, there's a lot of conversation, I think, about, okay, so there was the pandemic and there's supply chain upheaval and Russia invaded Ukraine and, you know, when are we going to get back to normal? Unfortunately, I think we're in a new normal. Uh, you, You have, as I mentioned, this paradigmatic shift from uh, global war on terror to uh, the rising again of Russia and China and other state adversaries, which are increasingly empowered um, and uh, you know feel capable of of taking on the United States. And when they take on the United States, that means they're taking on American business, whether that's through cyber attacks or you know uh, limiting access to markets or uh, compromising uh, you know business assets that we have overseas. Um, This is the new normal. And so as I look ahead five years, I expect that to unfortunately become more and more turbulent. Uh, I think that uh, U.S.-China relations are on a path to to become more tense. Um, And, uh, you know, we, we see obviously all the activity in the South China Sea and with Taiwan. And I think that should be on the minds of most executives. Um, and it, uh, not, not just those, by the way, who have operations in China or, uh, or in, in East Asia, um, you know, executives who, who just have organizations here need to be concerned, um, given the cyber angles, given the espionage angles, intellectual property theft, foreign malign influence and investment. Um, you know, you got to be thinking about these things. Um, and the one other thing I'll throw out there is, um, you know, so I, so I think you have that global piece that's going to, going to get right. get unfortunately worse over the next five years but um technology too right there's there's this intersection now between global threat and technology and i think we are just beginning um to wrap our minds around the security implications of some of these emerging technologies um i mean you i'm sure uh, are, are more familiar than than i am with um, you know, blockchain and crypto and, you know, every, all of the disruptions that are going on in the financial industry. Uh, you know, my mind also goes to the metaverse, which I know has sort of become this, you know, jokey phrase in some ways, right. you know, what, what is this thing? Well, I think, you know, it, companies that are trying to build metaverse platforms or are thinking about that, they need to be thinking about the security implications of what they're doing now, right? I mean, if you have in five years, um, virtual reality training grounds that terrorist organizations could use to 
plan operations or uh, foreign intelligence services could use to compromise information. Um, and, you know, your company uh, ends up being involved in that or enabling that or being liable for that in some way. Um, you know, better to think about those things now and build uh, with that on the mind from the ground up um, than to never think about it until it happens uh, once the technology and the threat environment that have, have um, you know, coalesced in a few years to get it to get it there. Oh, that's that's very helpful. Uh, Mark Friedman, love to have you back uh, to talk more about some of these issues in the future. So we will definitely reach back out. CEO and founder of Rebel Global Security. Uh, you can the website is rebelglobalsecurityoneword.com. Uh, Mark, again, thank you so much for sharing some time today. Stay safe and we'll talk soon. Thanks, John. Good to be here. Thanks for listening to another episode of AML Conversations brought to you by AML RightSource. To make sure you're staying up to date with what's going on in the industry, be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast to get the latest episode.